passage tonight is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. We're beginning uh, with verse 20, and I'll read all the way to verse 34. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as, a by, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do you mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at this passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. Send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Give us hearts to believe and trust in our great and good Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in uh, Patrick O'Brien's masterful novel, The Reverse of the Medal, Jack Aubrey, a wrongly condemned British naval officer, has been sentenced to one hour in the pillory. It's a wooden frame holding the head and the hands in a public place, to expose the criminal to ridicule. Thugs had bags of rocks and buckets of filth to throw at Jack as soon as he was put in place. The mob was so vicious that the sheriff's own men and the constables were terrified for their own safety. Listen as O'Brien sets the scene. Jack was led out of the dark room into the strong light and as they guided him up the steps he could see nothing for the glare your head here sir if you please said the sheriff's man in a low nervous conciliating voice and your hands just here the head a trifle forward if you please sir murmured the sheriff's man and the upper half of the wooden frame came down, imprisoning Jack's defenseless face. He heard the click of the bolt. And then 
In the dead silence, a strong voice cry, hats off. With one movement, hundreds of broad-brimmed tarpaulin-covered hats flew off, and the cheering began. The fierce, full-throttled cheering that Jack had so often heard in battle. What? What of the rocks? Where are the buckets of filth? What happened? Well, Jack's enemies had thought that he was going to be humiliated. And in fact, that he'd that he be injured, perhaps even killed. But by the time Jack's head was put into the pillory, all those thugs were gone. Instead of rocks being thrown in anger, men took off their hats as a sign of respect for a man they still considered to be a Navy captain. And instead of the crowd's jeers, Jack heard cheers. They were cheering him. A moment of humiliation was actually a moment of unexpected triumph. Here's how it happened. While Jack was awaiting his punishment in a dark room, his former servants from years of service slipped into the crowds and said, seamen only, landsmen, you need to leave. One shipmate known as Awkward Davies, a humongous man, with his voice, a thick voice, choking in fury at men who would mock his captain, well, he told them, words not fit for public consumption. But it had its desired effect. Everyone left except for Navy men. So instead of buckets of filth and rocks, Jack's men cheered him loudly. But of course, it's just a story. The triumph at the pillory didn't really happen. It wasn't really a reversal. And that's in direct contrast to Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, really crucified, between two thieves. And at the moment when the spectators looked at the man on the cross and thought that he was a complete and total failure, Jesus was actually accomplishing his life's work. He was, as Paul says in verse 3, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And Jesus, in dying for our sins and being punished in our place, was just, he was merely getting ready for round two and for his ultimate final triumph. Death could not hold him. He came back to life. And the passage before us helps us understand the significance of Jesus' return from the grave. Because Jesus really did rise from the grave, Christianity isn't an intellectual wasteland or a hothouse of confusion. Because Jesus is alive, Christianity is true. So we're going to talk about three, three things tonight. First, we're going to talk about what Christianity is like without the resurrection. Then we're going to talk about who Jesus is because he actually did, in fact, rise from the grave. And finally, we'll consider two points of application. So first, 
Christianity without the resurrection isn't Christianity. Now, let me say as an aside, one way of preaching this passage, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 20 to 34, one way of preaching this passage is to really slowly work through verses 20 to 28, and then just to say, well, it looks like we're out of time. Uh, Verse 29, what do people mean by being baptized for the dead? We'll just, sorry, folks, we ran out of time. But I'm going to actually confront that verse 29 first. So pay attention. We're considering the passage out of order. There's a reason for doing that. If you were here last week, then you heard Ted Wanger's pithy phrasing of the Apostle Paul's points in verses 12 to 19. Last week, Ted said that if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then the heart of the gospel is gone and our faith is pointless, truthless, fruitless, and hopeless. Pointless, truthless, fruitless, and hopeless. And Paul warms again to these very same themes, starting with verse 29. So verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, whatever this means, notice what Paul is saying, he's saying that if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christian practice is pointless. It's pointless. Now, you may ask, but what on earth are the Corinthians doing? Well, I wish that I could smile warmly at you and say, that's why you have me. But instead, I can only expose my own ignorance. The first question is whether or not Paul actually approves of their practice or disapproves of the practice. Some say that Paul doesn't approve of whatever it is that they're doing. They point out that Paul says in verse 29 that they are baptized, but then verse 30, why am I in danger every hour? So some people say Paul is distancing himself from their practice. And if that's right, then Paul's appealing to their practice, but not his own, because he wants them to believe the more important truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Well, that used to be my view. But this week, I have a different view. After all, if Paul isn't pleased with Corinthian practice then why doesn't he say so? Paul feels quite comfortable lecturing the Corinthians on divisions in the church in chapters 1 and 3, sexual immorality in chapters 5 to 7, lawsuits chapter 6, food before idols chapter 8, on the right of ministers to take a wife and to be paid by by their churches in chapter 9, head coverings of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, spiritual gifts in chapters 12 and 14, and orderly worship in chapter 14. So if they're doing something really strange, Paul has demonstrated over the course of 14 chapters that he's perfectly willing to rebuke them for it. And we know that we can rule out any suggestion in this verse that a specific already baptized Christian was being baptized as a representative of a dead, unbaptized Christian. 
Over a hundred years after this letter was written, Paul, people misread Paul and started doing just that, and they were roundly condemned by everyone. That's not what's going on here. So what is going on? Well, I think that Paul is talking about normal Christian baptism. Baptism, like circumcision, marks someone as a member of God's family. Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 13, that in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And this one body, the church, includes the living and the dead. The church includes those in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, those who've fallen asleep. But of course, baptism can't include you in the fellowship of the dead if death is the end and there's no resurrection. You're not really baptized into fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they've all ceased to exist. Again, however you read the passage, the key central point here is that the practice of baptism, the Corinthian practice, or the just general Christian practice, is pointless if there is no resurrection. Secondly, the Christian faith is truthless too. Look at verse 34. Verse 34, there Paul says, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The very fact that you're doubting the resurrection and living that way, Paul says, it shows that some of you have no knowledge of God. Paul is saying that if you're here today and you don't believe that when you die you'll keep on living, then you cannot be a Christian. You may have some religion, but it isn't Christianity. Without the resurrection, Christianity isn't Christianity. It's a truthless shell of a religion and not the real thing. Third, without the resurrection, Christianity is fruitless. As Paul says in verse 30 to the start of verse 32, Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead, oh, sorry, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus. And the answer, of course, is nothing. Paul gains nothing. The opposition to Paul at Ephesus was so vicious that he describes his human opponents as absolute beasts. But what does he get for facing such opposition? The answer is nothing. His work is fruitless. Christianity is fruitless without the resurrection. Finally, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then the Christian faith is hopeless. As Paul says in the second half of verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's reference to Isaiah 22:13 underscores the hopelessness of life without the resurrection. Woody Allen uh, was told one day that he would live on in his work. He would live on in his films. And Woody replied that he'd rather live on in his apartment. 
And Ronald Dworkin, in his book Religion Without God, reflects on Woody Allen's admirer. Either the comment, you'll live on in your work, is a prediction. It's saying that in the future, people will remember you because they remember your work. Or Dworkin says it's an assessment. The admirer, quote, meant that Allen's films constituted a timeless achievement that evolution, history, or fate cannot change. Like other works of art, they are an out-of-time achievement just in having been made, whether or not they continue to be admired or even survive. Dworkin prefers this assessment interpretation. He thinks that he's an atheist, and um, it's actually quite poignant. He wrote this book... Uh, uh, he, he died before the book was published. He died in February 2013, and, and the book was just published either late last year or early this year. But Dworkin, anyway, he, he thinks that you can achieve a kind of immortality, that you, you live in a certain way, you, you, have a, 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 you live a decent life, you do some good things, and, and that, that life well lived constitutes an accomplishment that is in some way immortal. But Dworkin moves too quickly. After all, if we take an assessment of our lives with anything but rose-colored glasses, we'll be appalled at what we see. I'm not trying to uh, insult Woody Allen, but can we by any stretch of the imagination say that his life taken as a whole, is an achievement. He's had three wives and two partners that are publicly known, and he's currently married to an ex-partner's daughter. Uh, the language that Paul would use was, borrowing from 1 Corinthians 5, a woman has her mother's husband. Well, she would if they bothered actually to get married. But we're no better. We are all, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, dead in Adam. Let's not be Pollyannas. We have to look at our lives as a whole, and if we do, we'll admit that we're born guilty and sinful, and it goes downhill from there. So we can't hope for immortality by some kind of assessment of our lives. Our lives are a wreck. But there's a second reason why there's no immortality in our life's work. Dworkin says that Allen's films are a timeless achievement that cannot change whether or not they even survive. Now, I'm terribly sorry, but it's just a fact of logic that if something is a timeless achievement that cannot change, then it cannot change. But if it doesn't survive, it changes. So it's not actually a timeless achievement. Your life or your life's work isn't a timeless achievement. If, in fact, your present life comes to an end, which it must, or if your work vanishes, which it will, our lives are hopeless without the resurrection, and it's sheer romanticism to suggest otherwise. 
I had a neighbor down the hall from me when I lived in England. He was actually my, my next door neighbor. And uh, he was a militant atheist. And every night, he told me, he would crawl into bed and get into the fetal position and say, my life has no meaning. My life has no meaning. My life has no meaning. Until eventually he fell asleep. There is no hope without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But fortunately, we have hope, don't we? Because, as Paul says in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus is alive. And we see in verses 20 to 28 that this Jesus is our certain hope and our conquering hero. First, Jesus is our certain hope. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And Paul leaves no mystery as to the identities of these men, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We are guilty, sinful, and dead in Adam. Adam's curse affected not him only, but the rest of fallen humanity. So you don't start off life as a morally neutral being. Your scorecard doesn't begin with a zero. You begin life as a sinner, minus infinity. And death is a constant reminder of sin's curse. God threatened death as the punishment for disobedience. And from Genesis chapter 4 to today, what do we see? We see people dying. And the death of our bodies points to a deeper, darker punishment awaiting the wicked. Hell itself which the book of Revelation calls the second death. But Christians should neither fear death nor hell, because Christ has come alive again. He is, verse 20, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Jesus is the first sign of the great harvest. He's the first flower. It's springtime. And look at verse 23. Adam got us all in trouble. But Jesus only serves as the representative for those who belong to him, for those who belong to Christ. Those who put their trust in Jesus are innocent, clean, and alive in him. Though they were once guilty, sinful, and dead in Adam. The resurrection says that Christians can look back to the cross and say, our sins are forgiven. And they can look forward to the future and say, because Jesus lives, we will live too. That's because Jesus is our certain hope. He's our certain hope. Second, Jesus is our conquering hero. Look down at verse 25. He, that is Jesus, must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. For, verse 27, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's a quote from Psalm 8. And Paul makes clear what the passage is about. It's about Jesus conquering all creation. And Paul continues in verse 27, when it says, that is the psalm, all things are put in subjection, 
it is plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That is to say, Jesus is the conquering hero who will put everyone under his feet except his own father to whom, verse 24, he delivers a kingdom after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So there's a marvelous truth that you may not have thought about. If you're a Christian here tonight, you need to know that your Lord Jesus conquered you. He fought you, miserable rebel. He fought me, miserable rebel. And he brought us to himself. Jesus loved me too much to leave me wallowing in my own sin and misery. He loves you too much to leave you in your sin and misery. He's your conquering hero, and he's mine too. And the last enemy to be destroyed by our Lord Jesus, Paul writes in verse 26, is death. I was reading Anne of Green Gables two Saturdays ago. It's the story of Anne Shirley, an orphan girl, who's raised by Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert. Uh, they've never married, and their brother and sister, they've never married, and they, that Matthew's getting on in, in years, and they need help. So they decide that they're going to adopt an orphan boy. But they discover only too late that they were sent a girl instead, Anne. Well, I'd enjoyed the book as a boy, but I'd forgotten that at the end of the book, spoiler alert, Matthew dies. Matthew dies. His death left no impression on me as a boy, but as a grown man with three children, I read the book through tears. In fact, my daughter got off the couch because I was crying too much and making her uncomfortable. <laughs> well, why the tears now as a grown-up, but not as a young boy? Well, I'll tell you. When I read Anne of Green Gables as a, as a boy, my grandfather, who used to rub my feet until I'd fall asleep, he was still alive. My grandmother was still alive. My grand, it was years later, years later, when my grandmother's cancer had metastasized and she was too weak to walk up the stairs and I had to carry her. When you're my age, you either fear death because you're weak in faith or you hate it because it robs you of the people that you love. And as a congregation, we are not strangers to death. I know that. And so we need to be reminded that Jesus conquers death. He's our conquering hero. And look at verse 28. When he accomplishes the subjugation of everything and defeats every enemy, including death, he appears before his heavenly father, having done all that he set out to do. Christians, we have a conquering hero. Well, as we close, let me make briefly two points of application. They are 
move out and wake up. Move out and wake up. First, to move out, look at verse 33. There Paul writes, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Isn't that curious? I don't know if you've thought about this before, but Paul has been talking about doctrine, about what people believe. But he jumps quickly to bad company ruins good morals. A line from Menander, a Greek, a Greek dramatist. Why does he do it? I think it's because how we live and what we think are more intimately connected than we realize. We think that we can dispassionately consider the claims of Christianity without our thoughts being affected by how we live our lives. But that's simply not true. To be faithful to the Lord Jesus, yes, we need to believe right things about him, but we also, some of us, need to leave sinful relationships and sinful habits. We have to move out. A minister I knew years ago was a single man in a large city, and he lived alone. And he shared the gospel with someone who was in a homosexual relationship. And the man wanted to follow Christ. But there was one problem. His partner paid the rent. He could leave his sinful relationship and follow Jesus. But then he'd be quite literally, homeless. What was this single minister's response? Come live with me. Come live with me. Quite literally, his response was, move out. And that's what some of us need to do. Secondly, some of us need to wake up. Look down at verse 34. Wake up. See, it's right from the text. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You know, I think that in my childhood, people were a lot more comfortable saying that somebody wasn't a Christian because of what he believed. I think we're a lot less comfortable doing that today. But Paul isn't. Paul's quite comfortable saying, for some have no knowledge of God. And far from putting the matter as gently as possible, he adds, I say this to your shame. Likewise, we need to be willing to say to people that if they doubt basic Christian doctrines, then they're not Christians. They need to wake up. Several years ago, uh, somebody in our family, a man I dearly love, uh, who's now in his 90s, looked at me and said, may I become a Christian while still being a materialist and believing that when I die, I cease to exist? And I can tell you, if there was any way that I could have told him yes, I would have. But I had to say, I'm very sorry. But the Apostle Paul says that you can't. And I said, and besides, if you're a Christian, 
then wouldn't you want to live with Jesus, your Savior, forever? Wouldn't you want to be with him? And I said, I'm sorry, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection. And some of us have to wake up. We have to wake up to what we believe and what we don't believe. We have to realize that our attitude about death reveals where our hearts really and truly are. Is our best hope for immortality to make whatever our equivalent of a Woody Allen film is, whatever that is, to make a great business deal to help some kids grow up and not go to prison or not go to prison for long, to write a good philosophy book? Is that our best hope for immortality? If that's all we've got, then it's pretty hopeless, isn't it? And we need to wake up. Our only certain hope is Jesus, our conquering hero. If we don't have him, then we don't have much. But if we have him, then we have all we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are kind to us, that you love us with an everlasting, always and forever love. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins, being raised on the third day. And thank you that you are a conquering hero and that you now, by your Holy Spirit, are drawing us wicked rebels to yourself. Do this great work. And we ask this for your great and awesome name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing uh, beneath the cross of Jesus. Let's stand and sing.